This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hall & Wilcox's cyber podcast, CyberZone. I'm Eden Winnicker, a partner and head of cyber at Hall & Wilcox. We're excited to be launching season two of CyberZone. For episode one, I'm thrilled to be joined by Ray Lowe. Ray is a cyber product leader for Australia at world leading insurer AXA XL. Welcome, Ray. Great. Really good to be here, Eden. Thanks. And so the title for today's episode is The Keys to Cyber Insurance and Systemic Risk. There's a lot to get through, and I'm confident our listeners will gain a lot from this discussion. So let's jump into it. Ray. You are the cyber product leader at AXA XL in Australia. Can you tell the audience about your role and a bit about AXA XL generally? Yes, of course. So AXA XL is the property, casualty and specialty risk division of AXA Group. And we offer insurance solutions in now well over 200 countries and territories, covering mid-sized companies to the world's largest multinats. And this includes a full suite of cyber insurance solutions. My role at AXA XL is to lead the cyber and tech business in Australia, which includes Brooklyn Underwriting. And for those that are unaware, Brooklyn Underwriting is our division in Australia that specialises in the SME market. I'm also responsible for product development to ensure our insurance offering continues to be fit for purpose for our clients and importantly incorporates all of the continuous learnings from claims and market trends. We also collaborate with the Insurance Council of Australia to support policy advocacy work, and we're really proud to be involved in this work because it is all done with this purpose of shaping positive outcomes in Australia in respect of cyber risks. That's a terrific overview, Ray. And so I guess what I wanted to do, do then is sort of d dive into a bit more about cyber insurance itself. Um, you know, sometimes we'll get questions, you know, what do cyber insurance policies cover? And so as a leading underwriter, and for those who don't know um, what the word underwriter is, it's someone who is a seller of cyber insurance. Um, what does a typical cyber insurance policy cover? Yeah, so Eden, coverage under a cyber policy typically falls into two buckets, being first-party costs and cover for third-party liabilities. So firstly, in respect of first-party costs, a fit-for-purpose cyber policy should be designed such that it covers the field in terms of those expenses necessary to respond to a cyber incident. And AXA Excel, we also have a global panel of breach response providers that can be immediately mobilised ranging from forensic IT experts, ransom negotiators, privacy lawyers, PR consultants, as well as identity and credit monitoring experts. Now, in terms of specific coverages, our policy first and foremost covers privacy notification and crisis management costs. So this can include forensic costs to determine the cause and scope of the breach, data recovery costs to remove the malware and reconstruct data from backups, expenses to determine the actions necessary to comply with legislation, and they may include notifying individuals who may have had their personal information compromised. Providing credit and identity protection for those impacted individuals is another head of cover, as well as hiring a PR consultant to provide advice in order for our policyholder to mitigate their reputation. Our policy also provides cover for extortion expenses, such as the reimbursement of digital currency to respond to the extortion demand, and of course, expert expenses to provide advice to the policyholder. 
And then in terms of the recovery phase, our policy also covers BI losses, i.e. the loss of profit resulting from a network compromise that had impacted not only to our policyholders' own systems, but also that of a dependent business, so that our policyholder obtains its tech services from, and this is generally termed contingent business interruption loss under the policy. So these are the first party coverages. We then move to the third party liability coverages, which includes any loss our policyholder becomes legally obligated to pay as a result of a claim alleging a privacy and security wrongful act. And your typical example of this is claims brought by impacted individuals whose personal information had been compromised in the cyber attack. There is also cover under our policy for defence costs and regulatory fines where legally permissible arising from a regulatory investigation. And the best example of this is an investigation commenced by our privacy commissioner in respect of a data breach. And then finally, to round things off, our policy can also be enhanced to provide cover for consequential reputational harm loss, i.e. the loss of profit as a result of any adverse publicity caused by the cyber incident, system failure, business interruption loss, which is any loss of profit caused by any unintentional or unplanned outage of the policyholder's computer system. And then finally, voluntary shutdown business interruption loss. And that is triggered when a decision is made by a CISO or functional equivalent to suspend or shut down the systems to prevent or mitigate a covered first party event. Thanks for that, Ray. That is a, an excellent and comprehensive um, summary of what you know, the, the Axe XL Cyber uh, policy covers. And when you think about, and I know we're going to get into this in a little bit more detail um, a bit later, but just when you think about the existing risks that businesses face, um, it makes a lot of sense for businesses to be purchasing this type of insurance. The next thing I wanted to ask you is really just about the, the, the claims environment and, and, and what that's doing to sort of policy pricing. And so, when we look at what's happened um, recently, the, the frequency, the size, the complexity of cyber insurance claims has drastically increased over the past few years. Um, and this is mostly attributed to ransomware attacks, uh, but, but more recently also to, to very high profile data breaches. Um, you know, at the same time, there's been a steady flow of, of business email compromise matters and social engineering fraud, or uh, some of our listeners would think of this as sort of invoicing fraud that takes place over email. Um, add to that, we've got you know some some regulatory reform, including the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act. There's been an increase in the maximum penalties that can be imposed for breaches of the Privacy Act. So, how is this existing claim environment and and the future risk of claims impacting pricing uh, for the purchase of cyber policies and also the limits that underwriters are prepared to offer? Yeah, great question, Eden. Yes, the cyber insurance market did undergo a period of challenging times in 2021 and the first half of 2022. And this was really caused by the increased frequency and severity of cyber incidents, particularly in 2019 and 2020. Loss trends during those periods were simply unsustainable. And as a result, cyber insurance rates doubled. And in some cases, triple digit rate increases were required. Insurers were also being very selective in the amount of capacity they offer and which coverage they will offer under the policy. So, for example, some insurers excluded ransomware reimbursement from coverage altogether. The other impact is that appetite for capacity had reduced. So, for instance, an insurer may have offered limits of up to $10 million in the past, 
In 2021 and 2022, they limited their capacity to $5 million or less. Now, the positive news is that we are starting to see the market stabilise, particularly in Q2 and Q3 last year, and we expect this trend to continue this year. There have, however, been a string of high-profile data breaches, which have led to swift legislative reforms, as you have mentioned. One of the changes, of course, is the amendment to the Privacy Act to increase penalties for any repeated or serious data breaches to up to 30% of the adjusted turnover of the organisation. And from this backdrop of increased breaches and the rollout of more legislative reforms, we continue to anticipate a sustained high-level demand for cyber insurance, driven by both new buyers of cyber insurance and also from organisations wishing to purchase additional cyber insurance capacity. What won't change, however, is that cyber insurers, including AXA Excel, will continue to apply strict underwriting discipline, looking carefully at potential clients' attention to cybersecurity and preparedness to determine adequate rate, coverage, and capacity. So I think uh, you know, one of the key take that, that's a great answer. One of the key takeaways for, for me there, and something that gets talked about a lot, is sort of the cyber market stabilising, which I think is a really important thing for people to know. Um, and I, I've got a bit of a follow-up question. Um, just you know, on the 16th of February, you, we've sort of mentioned the Attorney General's privacy um, reform report that was released on that date. You know, without getting into too much detail about the 116 proposed reforms, you know, at a really high level. Um, how do you think these sweeping proposed reforms could impact the cyber insurance market and policies? Yeah, look, firstly, I, I think the large proportion of the community welcomes the report into our Privacy Act. And I do agree with our Information Commissioner's comments that as the world has become increasingly connected, our privacy laws need to adapt to ensure that personal information is protected and handled fairly and I consider these proposals simply reflect the baseline privacy rights expected by a community. I don't think that the proposed reforms will significantly impact the cyber insurance market, although insurers will be monitoring the potential impacts to claims costs if one of the proposals of introducing a personal right to sue for breach of privacy is passed into law. Through the underwriting process, however, more targeted questions will be asked of organisations to determine whether they are compliant with all of their obligations under the various legislative frameworks. We note that many of the recommendations are intended to shift this burden from individuals to safeguard their privacy to now place more responsibility on organisations who collect and use personal information to ensure that they have robust practices in place. And as a final comment, I do think that the public spotlight on the recent breaches, together with more active intervention from our regulators, have absolutely driven greater awareness and changes on an organisation level to elevate their cybersecurity controls and preparedness. And this is good for the market. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that last point about the, the positive benefits. Um, for those interested in learning a bit more about the proposed reforms, there is an article um, published on the Hall & Wilcox website within the cyber page. Um, so if you're interested, please feel free to go there and then look, I'm sure there's going to be plenty more discussed about those reforms. Um, they're currently open to, for consultation until the 31st of March, and it'll be really interesting to see how that then develops. But yeah, really um, important reforms and, and no doubt they'll have an impact on cyber policies. 
The next question is, I think, a really, really important one. Um, and Ray, I know we've spoken about it before, and it's something that I think is 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 really highly important to insurers, and it's important for the business community to understand this issue too. And that is that cyber is such a unique insurance product due to the risk of a widespread catastrophic event impacting an entire book of business. And so unlike other major risks like floods and earthquakes, which have seen impacting um, many people in Australia, they're typically restricted to a particular geographic area, whereas a cyber attack exploiting a commonly used piece of software can be launched by anyone, anywhere, and have a major impact on businesses throughout Australia. And this is what we call systemic risk. So what is your view on systemic risk? Really good topic, Eden. Um, so firstly, it's important to note that systemic cyber risks are inherent in all cyber portfolios. And unfortunately, it cannot be effectively managed simply through risk transference. And the reason for that is because the risk also exists for reinsurance. What it really calls for is action on a policy level. So as a starting point, systemic cyber risk is founded on this broader idea of systemic risk, which is the possibility that a single event might trigger widespread failures, impacting multiple organizations, sectors, or even nations. And I came across a very helpful definition provided by James Schuerman in his 2018 paper. In the cyber context, then, he says that systemic cyber risks arises out of a digital network that consists of standardized or functionally interconnected endpoints that permits cascading adverse events throughout. And these events occur at such a high rate of speed that they cannot be contained at all or in a timely fashion. There are two good examples of systemic events that cyber insurers and reinsurers are accumulating risks. The first is this potential for a single vulnerability in shared systems, networks, or technologies that can be weaponized by adversaries to cause maximum damage and cause widespread events. So think about the Log4j zero-day vulnerability discovered in late 2021. The second example is an attack or even simply an accidental failure of a significant cloud software provider leading to an extended outage of that software. It is really important to make the distinction from non-systemic cyber risks. So we're not talking about individualized intra-organization risk that has only one insurance relevant effect or only a relatively few other risks that are not generated by interconnections. So we're not talking about the colonial pipeline ransomware attack, even though the downstream impact was very significant. We're not talking about the Medibank incident or the Optus incident because those exposures only impact one cyber policy or one tower of cyber insurance. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. So I think for the listeners who haven't really thought about systemic risk in the context of cyber, we're talking about a major vulnerability in let's just say like hypothetically in like a Microsoft product that that maybe a substantial number of companies are relying on to use email and you know we're talking about a hypothetical situation where something means that you know companies who use Microsoft can't send emails. You know, that is what we're talking about with systemic risk. And that that is something of, um, you know, really high importance to, to, to many businesses and in particular insurance companies who have re and reinsurers who have written risk for cyber policies where you can imagine a hypothetical scenario where there's a rush on claims coming in if this issue was to occur. I might have a follow-up question on that um, for you, Ray. And, and really it's, it's, it's of interest to, I think, to a lot of people, you know, how, how does an insurer, you, you get to see things from the inside, um, you know, within the insurer, how does an insurer prepare for that type of 
sort of scenario and, and and what can what can people be doing more broadly what could be done more broadly about that kind of risk yeah so some insurers have introduced limitations to cover depending on the type of event or the cause of the event however I do think that given the breadth and complexity of the underlying problem, effective policymaking should involve a diversity of stakeholders from private entities to public groups and international cooperation is required because systemic cyber risks are inherently global. Firstly, information sharing is key, right? And it should be an exercise to obtain cyber risk data from multiple sources. Data from multiple sources will then allow for a more holistic understanding of the cross-cutting and shared risks that may have cascading impacts within and across organizations and sectors. Through this information, we can then use it to identify, prioritize, and analyze where concentrated pockets of risks exist. And then finally, through this data, we can also understand this relationship between threat, vulnerability, and consequence on critical functions with more precision than before. Another thing that is important is promoting tools to address concentrated sources of cyber risk. So for example, a software bill of materials has emerged in the US as a key building block in software security and software supply chain risk management. A software bill of materials is an inventory, um, a list of ingredients, if you like, that make up the software components. And the goal is to increase transparency and trust in the critical software that we rely on and he helps identify vulnerability issues earlier on in the process so that can be resolved before they cause any harm. And then finally, there is also a suggestion to explore a public-private partnership to combat systemic cyber risks. And the reason for this is because there will always remain events that has the potential to generate massive correlated losses at a global scale. For instance, the BI-insured losses caused by an extended outage to a significant cloud software provider. And we can then look to the established public-private partnership that have demonstrated their potential in other challenging areas, including extreme weather, natural catastrophe, as well as terrorism. Yeah, I mean, that all makes perfect sense. And it's something that, you know, you imagine, you know, needs to be done to try and offset the, the risk of the aggregated claims. The next topic I wanted to jump to, um, and this really came up on the back of the Medibank breach. Um, there are some really strong voices in the community by politicians and leading business people to ban ransomware payments in Australia. What are your views on that? Look, there are arguments on both sides of the coin. I mean, the, the primary case to make payment of a ransomware demand illegal is that these payments enrich organised crime. Therefore, payment of ransoms effectively encourage and facilitate future ransomware attacks and increase the intensity and frequency of these attacks. However, in my view, this policy decision to ban ransomware payments and the indemnification of those will remove a significant mitigating mechanism off the table for victims of a ransomware attack. And I anticipate more data breaches may arise as ransomware gangs pivot their business model to immediately start to monetize the stolen data. Example, in the case of a health insurer, direct extortion of members with sensitive health records. I also anticipate that data recovery costs, forensic costs, and BI losses will increase, which may impact cyber insurance affordability. And it may also cause unintended consequences to the community. So for instance, think about the irreparable damage to vulnerable sections of the community if the POI contains very sensitive personal information. 
Also, if the attack impacted an organization that provides critical infrastructure, it can lead to an extended outage of those critical services to the community. In the case of the Colonial Pipeline incident, the decision to pay the ransom was to avert the significant interruption to the public. And so if there is a ban on ransomware payments, it takes this mitigating me mechanism completely off the table. Another unintended consequence is that you may have a situation where organisations simply stop notifying breaches and secretly pay the ransom in order to stay afloat, which can then impact the quality of the data collected by the government under our mandatory notifiable data breach framework. And so for those reasons, we consider that further analysis and consultation with important stakeholders is required, particularly involving insurers to ensure that an informed policy decision is made rather than a knee-jerk response, which would only make the problem worse. I think that's really insightful response and, and covers you know, a really good overview of the key issues. Um, it's, it's a topic that I find particularly interesting to think about. Um, I have done some reading up on what happened when some countries tried to ban kidnap and ransom insurance payments in the 70s, when these very debates seem to have been happening uh, all those years ago. And, and, and from the reading I've done, it doesn't appear that the banning of the payments actually stopped it from happening. It just sort of drove it into the black market. Um, and similarly, we've seen similar things in um, some of the states in the US who have tried to, to ban ransom payments, only to find out those payments weren't stopping. They were being driven into the um, black market, and it did look to impact the, the transparency with notification under other regulatory obligations. So that that point you hit on um, at the end there. So it's a really interesting space. Reasonable minds can differ on it. And, and I, I think your um, comment that consultation should be prioritised is spot on. And, and I couldn't agree more with that. Coming to the next question, this has been a terrific discussion, really, really insightful. Um, and I, I wanted to then move to a question that, that I'm having a lot with IT companies, with with company, with corporates, with you know just 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 many different stakeholders, um, in, in particular sort of brokers and corporates in the last year who have said that that they as a client or, or clients that they have, they're actually getting rejected from obtaining cyber insurance, which um, I think is a really important thing for people who are listening to appreciate. You know, cyber insurance is like any type of insurance. Insurers want to make sure that they're insuring a good risk. You know, you can't get car insurance if your car's not roadworthy. Uh, and I think that's the way to think about cyber insurance. Cyber insurers have moved from just sort of handing out policies to those who want them to, to really trying to assess the roadworthiness of network infrastructure and security for companies. Um, and, and, and really the main reason I've been told that companies aren't getting it is the lack of network security or the sector that they operate in. Um, Ray, again, so you're in this amazingly unique position where, you know, you are a seller of cyber insurance. You're the head of product for, for AXA Excel in Australia. Um, it'd be great to hear from you about, you know, what are the keys to obtaining cyber insurance and, you know, what can a company do to get better premiums or higher limits? I'm sure many listeners will be very eager to hear about this. Yes, another good question, Eden. Look, I think it's firstly important to note that the underwriting criteria can differ by market segments and also by industry. Example, the underwriting criteria for a small organisation differs to that of a large corporate. And similarly, for example, the exposure analysis for a large healthcare provider differs to that of insuring a law firm. In saying that, AXA Excel has a set of minimum security criteria that applies to all risks, which includes enabling MFA for any and all remote access to the corporate network, 
the organization needs to demonstrate that they are safely securing backups and have an acceptable patching cadence. This list, I have to stress, is non-exhaustive, and some controls are more critical depending on segment and industry. Again, cyber insurers, including AXA Excel, are adopting strict underwriting discipline, looking carefully at potential clients' attention to cybersecurity and preparedness. And for those organizations that truly understand their cyber exposures and have tailored their security controls through an informed decision-making process, are best positioned to secure the most favorable terms. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I guess some some companies uh, just realistically are not in a position to get cyber insurance within the time frame that they would like, um, and 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 hopefully those companies are in the process of uplifting their systems, working with the right people to to be able to achieve that. Ray, I just wanted to ask a follow up, and and I think you know you might have some views on this, but for those organizations that are unable to purchase cyber insurance for whatever reasons. Are you aware of any solutions that can be offered by cyber insurers? Yeah, so for those organisations that can look to alternative risk transfer solutions when they seek cyber insurance, this could be a captive, a structured risk solution or a mix of both. As you have mentioned, as a result of cyber market dynamics, many clients are considering increasing their cyber program's retention or they are being forced to increase the retention due to escalating claim costs or premium increases. And we are seeing that risk managers are looking to captives as a potential source to alleviate the resulting larger retentions. And we have seen captive involvement in cyber insurance programs have increased significantly in the past two years. Some companies are also using their captives to address gaps in cyber coverage. Structured reinsurance programs can offer multi-year coverage and protection against risk volatility over time. So to take you through an example, a three to five year reinsurance contract with a term aggregate limit and premiums with profit and risk sharing elements in place could help the organization avoid annual risk spike from large events or aggregate losses. Also, such a structure could potentially enable a captive to reduce or redeploy some of the capital it would need to hold without such multi-year structured reinsurance support. When a client does not have a captive, Excel can work with the insured to issue a structured solution that covers their losses and expenses within the retention layer on a reimbursement basis. And we have and continue to work with our clients to settle on coverage wording that matches the primary coverage to the extent possible and where it fits within our guidelines and risk appetite. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful for listeners to know. And so, you know, the key takeaway from today is if if you're a company and you're, um, you've got cyber insurance or, um, or or not, you know, speak to your broker, ask them about Ray, ask them about AXA. If you don't have it and you want to sort of try to come up with a solution, you know, get your broker to reach out to Ray to have a discussion about um, what AXA Excel can do for you. And the other thing I just mentioned is that, um, you know, if, if you don't have the insurance, I mean, if you've got the insurance, it's great because you'll have a whole response process built into that policy and you get to speak to experts who deal with this type of risk every day. If you don't have the cyber insurance and you have an incident, I do strongly encourage you to reach out to experts, um, you know, you know, ourselves or, or other experts, you know, but I think the way to think of it is, you know, responding to a cyber attack can sort of be like heart surgery. If you got, if you need to get heart surgery, you need to go to a heart surgeon, don't go to a GP, don't go to um, a brain surgeon or an ear, nose, throat specialist. It's really important to go to people who 
have the experience dealing with this type of risk because it is it is unique and and it can make a big difference to um, the company's downtime and the overall risks that the company faces on the back of an incident which we're all trying to avoid but they do unfortunately so I think that was it um, Ray thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights, experiences, and expertise. It's been really valuable. And again, for those um, wanting more information about uh, you know, the policies um, and products that Ray sells, and please have your broker get in touch with him. And also, of course, uh, as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Um, we trust that you found today's information useful and please reach out if you have any questions or follow-ups. You can find my details on the Holland Wilcox website, hollandwilcox.com.au. Uh, both myself and Ray are on LinkedIn. Um, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review uh, and follow our podcast. You can subscribe on our website to be notified of new episodes. Have a great day, everyone, and stay cyber safe. Mm-hmm.